Countries must falter, particularly in a world that is now suffering the consequences of war and inflation, and countries therefore are unable to meet the challenges of finding the necessary resources to finance their way to net zero. This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. The global north borrows between interest rates of between 1% to 4%. The global south of 14%. And then we wonder why the just energy partnerships are not working. So you just were listening to Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, speaking at the COP27 in Egypt this past week, raising some really important questions that we're going to try to deal with in the next segment. She's amazing. She asks and says things that make the current powers that be very uncomfortable. Hi, everyone. Glad to have you guys join us again for another episode of The Crane an Africa-China podcast brought to you by Dongsheng Collective. We have been away for a little bit, but we're hoping to launch straight back into things by getting into the environmental crisis, COP27, and of course, what China and Africa's environmental cooperation has looked like around the various issues that the climate crisis has brought us. So this week, or this last week and a half, we've seen leaders from across the world, um, not only in state, but also movement leaders of popular organizations, social justice movements, peasant organizations, go to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for the 27th Conference of the Parties, aka COP27, uh, for what is known as, you know, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I mean, there's been a lot of interesting public debate that's been happening, particularly coming from social movements. And one of the big pushes that was coming from below that has been a major conversation has been the fact that the loss and damages um, has been brought onto the agenda and finally has been accepted. Usually it's pushed back uh, against from, you know, Western countries usually precisely because loss and damages refers to the negative consequences of climate change on human societies and the natural environment as a result of human activities. And why would the West push back on this? Because the West, the historically rich countries, according to this understanding of loss and damages, is that the richest countries are actually responsible for most of the excess carbon emissions that are causing, you know, climate breakdown. And in fact, recent stats have shown that the rich countries, which is primarily, you know, the US and European countries, are responsible for 90% of the excess carbon emissions. So social movements have been pushing for this for years, for decades. Um, particularly because the global south is so severely impacted. We saw what happened in Pakistan some months ago. We've seen in East Africa from Kenya, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Tanzania experiencing extreme weather changes from um, extreme droughts to uh, cyclones and hurricanes and flooding that accompany it. 
And so, you know, a recent study by Jason Hickel, who's an, an excellent environmental scholar with a, with a really great class analysis, he had a report in Lancet that came out earlier this year that basically as of 2015, the U.S. was responsible for 40% of excess global CO2 emissions. The European Union was 29%. The G8, which basically includes the U.S., the EU28, Russia, Japan and Canada, together are responsible for 85% of this. So, I mean, the stats are clear, the stats are out there, the evidence is there, the scientific evidence is there. And in terms of the COP itself, this understanding has been um, long in the making because in 1992, the United Nations Conference on Environmental on Environment and Development basically set out these different principles. And one of the important ones, the seventh principle, known as common but differentiated responsibilities was declared as a significant pillar if we're going to tackle the environmental crisis. And what do they mean by common but differentiated responsibilities? It basically establishes that all nations on our sweet um, earth need to take some common responsibility to reduce emissions. But, and this is the big but that us in the global south are always concerned about, but that the developed countries, they actually bear a much greater and differentiated responsibility due to the historical fact that they have been the greater, you know, polluters and contributors to the cumulative global emissions that are causing various things like climate change. And I mean, we can look into that in another episode in that deep history, but even if we look at, and you know, Amadeus, I've been involved in looking at research around foreign militarization on the continent, We have big issues. You know, right now people are trying to push for the war with Ukraine and Russia to increase, to heat and up when we're not understanding the bigger picture that, for example, the U.S. military is one of the single largest institutional emitters of greenhouse gases in the world. And yet... According to the Kyoto Protocol of 1997, the U.S. government basically, as well as the 2015 Paris Agreement, the U.S. government basically found a way to have military greenhouse gases exempted from the climate negotiations. So up until today, the U.S. military and various militaries of different countries it's, it's basically encouraged to voluntarily report on the emissions, but it's often not included. So we're sitting in a very, um, you know, critical on the edge of the cliff situation. And yet we still don't see concrete responsibility coming from those um, historical and institutional countries and, and groups who've been the major carbon polluters. And lastly, before we're getting a little bit into more of the China-Africa element, um, but I think this is an important international context to set, is that right now, despite all of this, you know, there are clear limitations of the COP27. A lot of activists and environmental, social um, are basically super critical of the fact that how can we have a COP27 that's funded, among others, by groups like Coca-Cola, who is one of the major abusers of water and massive polluters of plastic, as well as the fact, and I'm just going to put in, sorry, my little activist hat, I'll take it off very shortly, Amadeus, is that not only um, are there these kinds of limitations around the fact that multinational corporations are funding this, not only 
there've been a lot of, you know, Twitter memes of all the jet planes polluting as they come to land the leaders of the world in Egypt. Aside from those things, it's also taking place in not far from Cairo, Egypt, where you have human rights activists like Ala Abdullah Fattah, who's sitting in prison for almost a decade and who now is actually going to deepen, he deepened his hunger strike by no longer drinking water from the beginning of the COP. Um, precisely because in Egypt itself, there's very many limitations to uh, people's ability to protest against unequal social conditions. Um, and so if people are not able to even speak their minds freely in that country and uh, political dissent is discouraged and even criminalized, how will environmental activists be able to push an agenda that will actually serve the people? So, I mean, this is just the stage I wanted to set. And I think, Amadeus, it would be great if we can listen to this clip by Vijay Prashad, the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, as he mentions some of these limitations before I think we think about what is China doing to tackle the situation? And what is Africa doing with China to tackle the situation of the environmental crisis? Let me tell you something. The climate justice movement, not clued enough on this. Not clued enough on this. The climate justice movement is a movement that says we're worried about our future. What future? What future? Children in the African continent, in Asia, in Latin America, they don't have a future. They don't have a present they're not worried about the future. They're worried about their present. Your slogan is, we're worried about the future. What future? That's a middle-class bourgeois Western slogan. You got to be worried about now. 2.7 billion people can't eat now. And you're telling people, reduce your consumption. How does this sound to a child who hasn't eaten in days? You got a clue into this, guys. You got a clue into this, otherwise, this movement will have no legs in the third world. No legs. Okay, that was Vijay Prashad of Tricontinental leading us into what China is doing about climate change right now. So we have to consider that building an ecological civilization is one of the key pillars of Xi Jinping thought. And it's a key priority for the government of China to create an economy that is um, carbon neutral by 2060. In fact, uh, the Chinese government has dedicated itself to a dual carbon goal, and that is to reach peak carbon by 2030 and to reach and build an economy, an industrial base with zero carbon emissions by 2060. This is a very, very, very ambitious goal, but they've thought this through, and I believe they can pull this off. And one of the key things Xi Jinping has said is that we need to build the new before we tear down the old. So there is a realization that the economic industrial needs of the country, of the people of China, need to be met as the the country is going through this green transition. So let's just take a step back and let's discuss China's role in climate change because this has been discussed a lot and <laughs> there's been a lot of very inflammatory talk about this in the Western mainstream media. So since 20, um, 2006, China has been the largest contributor to carbon dioxide emissions. That is a recorded fact. So according to the International Energy Agency, in 2021, China's uh, CO2 emissions rose above 
11.9 billion tons, accounting for 33% of the global total. This was mainly because of the spike in natural gas prices, which has led to the increased use of coal to generate electricity, which is understandable. Now, this has to be seen in context, and we're going to get to that context very soon. Um, many Western uh, people and in institutions have relied on this data to uh, paint China as the chief climate villain, you know, the, as a country that pollutes the world and that is somehow solely responsible for climate change and the destruction of the um, natural environment, which is far from true and a massive exaggeration. We need to take into account that when we look at the principle, or we talk, mm -hmm. Mika, you mentioned the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, right? We're all in this boat together, this uh, giant space station called Earth. That's the only home we have, you know, and doesn't matter if Elon Musk reaches Mars or not, most of us are not going to get there. So uh, we have one home, and that's the Earth. But in terms of actual CO2 emissions and climate change, I think the responsibility for it has to be differentiated. Now, we've already mentioned that uh, China is a developing country. China has massive economic needs. It has uh, pulled over 880 million human beings out of poverty, and it's working on uplifting more of its people out of poverty and improving their material living conditions. So it, it does emit the majority of CO2 right now. But historically, to date, the United States of America has emitted more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than China ever has. In fact, more than a quarter of all historically emitted carbon dioxide has been emitted by the United States, which is twice that what China has emitted to date. So we have to be very realistic about the needs of the global south here. The reliance of China and India and other developing economies on carbon, especially coal to generate electricity is very, very high because often these are the only resources available to uh, generate electricity in the quantities required to improve people's livelihoods and to provide them with the livelihood in the first place. And not just the only resources, let's say also the only historically developed industries, right? Because Africa has tons Indeed. of resources, but we don't have the the infrastructure. Um, you know, we have lithium in Zimbabwe in great quantities. It's the fifth largest um, reserve of lithium. Yes. But we don't have the historical investment and infrastructure to actually create electric, you know, or batteries for electric cars, for example. Well, and but if, as you were saying, even if you are if you are going to create electric cars, where are you going to get the power from, right? Um, as you said, um, in the African context, we don't even have the quote unquote old or older industrial electrical um, generation kind of capacity uh, that even using coal would require. You know, I mean, I think one of the few countries that has an extensive or used to have make extensive use of coal-fired power plants was uh, South Africa um, under apartheid and uh, Zimbabwe to an extent. Uh, so, Which is not even able to help us right now no, since we no. go through daily <laughs> load shedding because of the lack of upkeep and maintenance and uh, diversification of the uh, 
energy resources. But that's a story for another day. That but going is a back story to the, <laughs> the use of carbon. But it is interesting because in Zambia, we have the exact same problem, but we've been using renewable sources to generate our electricity for the entire existence of our, this country. The vast majority of Zambian electricity is generated by hydroelectric power, but that also has limitations and maintenance issues and growth issues have come into play and it's just inadequate right now. So um, just uh, to go back to the issue of China and India, um, even the recent use by these two countries of carbon to generate energy is still below that of the United States. So in 2019, uh, the figures for per capita carbon emissions of Australia was uh, 16.3 tons per capita the U.S. was 16 tons per capita, which was twice that of China and India. China uh, used 7.1 tons of coal per capita, and India used uh, 1.9 tons per capita. I mean, this is like far off, right? And somehow the media will have you believe that China and India are the worst polluters, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, in a recent press conference, uh, Li Gao, uh, Director General of the Department of Climate Change under the uh, Chinese Ministry of Ecology and Environment, said that uh, carbon dioxide emissions per unit of GDP in China have decreased by 50.8% compared with those in 2005. And they are 3.8% lower than they were last year, this year. And uh, he also pointed out that the share of non-fossil fuel energy consumption increased to 16.6%. I think these are really encouraging figures and really, really positive in terms of um, what it spells for climate change or at least our response and adaption to climate change. Now, China is also a leader in uh, renewable energy. Um, it's a leader in hydropower. Uh, it's responsible for 30.1% of the global production of hydropower, 28.4% uh, of wind power, and it generates, this is crazy, you know, like, this is an amazing figure. China generates two-thirds of the solar energy generated in the world as of uh, 2019. You know, I, this is something I've never understood. In most parts of Africa, we have ample sunshine, right? Like we should literally be the leaders in solar energy consumption. You know what, Mika, there was a project, there was a plan once that if large parts of the Sahara Desert in North Africa were turned into different solar parks, that would be enough electricity to power the entire world. The entire world could be powered with solar power from the Sahara Desert, if we wanted to, if we, as a, a, a civilization, as a, as a human beings, had the will to do that, it just boggles the mind. It just boggles the mind. So China is um, also demanding um, in forums like COP that developed countries honor their climate financing commitments to Africa. This has been very, very important. You mentioned this that China. Um, that Africa has said that, listen, uh, we need to adapt. Climate change is here. We're taking massive losses in terms of agricultural land, um, water resources, and we also have our own genuine needs for development. 
And the Western countries have promised, have made several promises that this would happen. Um, of course, nothing has come through. Um, I remember there was a, a figure bandied about a few years ago uh, that uh, promised billions of dollars to uh, global South countries to deal with the impact of climate change, to deal with the issues of how do you industrialize without um, carbon, you know, without uh, your coal, without your petrol, your diesel, but nothing has come through um, as far as I know. So uh, China has been a strong ally to Africa. Um, developed nations have pledged 100 billion US dollars annually in climate financing to developing countries. Which I'm not sure if that's the figure for general climate financing or if it's around the um, climate adaption. But from what I know from the Climate Adaption Fund, which was supposed to be $100 billion annually, very little has actually tangibly manifested. And these are still the same countries who insist on massive military expenditure. You know, the U.S. is close to a trillion in their military budget annually. Oh, right. Um, the kind of spending that would be better serving, you know, the dilemmas of humanity and the different issues that we're faced with climate adoption, let alone the fact that I mentioned the U.S. military is one of the biggest institutional carbon emitters. And uh, just a, a percentage, uh, a fraction of this expenditure could actually make a huge material difference in the world, um, build goodwill and bridges between nations and create a much more peaceful, prosperous and safe world. Um, but well, the military industrial complex probably is not really interested in that. Private profiteers. Um, so always, I mean, so now what has China been doing in relation to Africa? Here's a clip from David Monai, who is the director of the Center for African Studies at the University of Johannesburg. A satellite cooperation between China and Ethiopia was so successful. And one is expecting China to enter into uh, with other African countries, particularly Nigeria, Kenya and South Africa. Some of the African countries with at least knowledge uh, on space uh, to counter the environmental uh, challenges that we face. So that was Dr. David Monyai, director of the Center for China-Africa Studies at the University of Johannesburg. And it's on a clip um, of an interview done a couple of years ago with CGTN. And I mean, aside from those, we just wanted to briefly mention a couple of areas is that since November 2020, uh, we had the establishment of the China-Africa Environmental Cooperation Center, which was basically, you know, how can we counteract the effects of climate change and the environmental crisis? And it was, you know, been five years or so in the making prior to that, um, before they came together and basically officialized it. But before that, China had signed... Um, a couple of deals, 14 deals on tackling climate change with 13 nations in Africa from 2011 or so, and had donated amounts of, you know, equipment to help countries in the content. Uh, you know, there was, this included like 10,000 sets of solar uh, power generation equipment. It also included launching small satellites, as Monyai mentioned in the clip, that help us to better surveil um, climate issues. Remember, folks might remember who listened to our previous episode that it was a Nigerian satellite that was able to, uh, what was it, Amadeus? 
it uh, actually provided some of the first warning and pictures of Hurricane Katrina way back in the early 2000s to the people of the United States, right? And this one satellite caused so much controversy that British politicians insisted their government cut off all development aid to Nigeria because they had an unnecessary space program. Go and figure that one. Go and figure that one. But aside from that, I think the more recent uh, cooperation that's been happening is from the FUCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation of November 2021, one of the 10 areas of agreement was on green development programs. And they had a little bit of detail, but actually not much detail. So they said they would undertake, China would undertake 10 green development, environmental protection, and climate action projects that would basically support the development of a great green wall and build, you know, different centers in Africa for, you know, low carbon development and different climate change adaption projects. We still, you know, this was just a year ago. So I think we're not seeing a lot of the kind of materiality of it or the specificity around it perhaps we need to do a little bit of more of a deep dive into this issue because there's not you know always the best english resources out there for us but in recent news um i think it was maybe two weeks ago there was a pledge from china around and i know again we know that pledges do not form material changes make necessarily not always but it's still encouraging to know that there are efforts being made where um, they were going to pursue cooperation agreements with 19 African nations on uh, climate change and green energy development. And this was in the hopes of shifting away from fossil fuel energy. You know what she said of, you know, building the new before we abandon the old, which is one of their key planks. But China has uh, committed to to billions of US dollars in financial aid in the past two decades around investments in clean energy. I think there've been at least 100 clean energy projects running in the continent. Some of these have included, for example, China Exim Bank funded the construction of a 15 megawatt solar power plant in Garissa, a very semi-arid region of northeast Kenya. And the China Jiangxi Cooperation for Corporation, sorry, for International Economic and Technical Cooperation built a you know hundred million dollar plant, a solar plant, which began running in 2019. And it provides power for more than 380,000 people. And it remains one of the largest um, solar electricity stations in East Africa. It is also among others, like we've seen in Sakai, in uh, Central African Republic, a solar power station being built by Chinese funding. In Aisha, there was a wind power project. Aisha is in Ethiopia. As well as in Zambia, we've seen the Kafui Gorge hydroelectric station, which you mentioned um, Zambia Kafue. uses. Kafue. Kafue, yeah. Sorry, I just have to. Yeah. <laughs> As a Zambian, I have to just say Kafue <laughs> or Kafue. Kafue, <laughs> uh, where, you know, hydroelectricity is a big source of, of, of generation, which again, we have all these natural resources, big water sources that could be used more effectively across um, the African continent. And keeping in mind the context of this is that Sub-Sahara needs at least 300 billion to achieve universal electricity access by 2030. In a continent where... That is $300 billion, yes, right? Yes, yes, dollars. Uh, bearing in mind that 
we have a continent where 55% of the African population lacks access to electricity. And of course, this creates various power shortfalls for our industries. So we have a, a serious deficiency if we're even not thinking about the climate question, which of course we need to because we won't survive and satisfy our electrical needs if we don't have a planet <laughs> to survive on. But I will say... Kind of hard, yeah. But I will say, of course, um, as much as, and I think Amadeus, we always are trying to think about how we measure these things and understand that we're, we're not trying to be praise poets for the Chinese government um, because there are severe limitations where, one, of course, we have the limitation as we always raise around African agency where um, China's pledges always depend on yes. the capacity and willingness of our own local governments to to focus on you know sustainable outcomes and to provide the necessary conditions for those outcomes to manifest. But of course, there's the issues already raised in previous episodes and in this episode of we still are largely getting this infrastructure built through loan agreements which again are different from a lot of Western loans since they have longer maturing periods, lower interest rates, less conditionalities, less to no conditionalities. But regardless, um, a lot of African countries are already struggling to service their their public debts or repayments of debts. Uh, So that's one issue around our energy projects and green energy projects in particular. And of course, is the fact that most of the continent still largely is focused on, you know, fossil energies. And China has therefore focused the energy in those areas as well. So for the first half of 2022, um, gas projects were the main driver of China's energy financing and investment across the African continent. So we still have an issue of relying on non-renewable resources. And that agenda won't, you know, flip overnight. But we do have to as, as the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa has been calling for for many years, because we do have a lot of um, workers in the non-renewable resource energy sector, is we can't just abandon these projects because we are highly underdeveloped. We have underdeveloped industries, as well as we have a large workforces involved in those areas. So as NOMSA, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, has been calling for for many years, we require a just transition, a transition away from uh, non-renewables to renewables that takes into account how society is organized and the fact that we have historical burdens that we carry as well as issues of social inequality that need desperately to be recognized as we try to tackle the question of the environmental crisis. You raise an important point here, Mika. I think we said a, a mouthful. We, we have, but I think it's also really important to stress this point because what is coming across in the Western media and from Western leaders on this sort of thing, it's very much similar to the issue of wildlife conservation, which is also very, very controversial nowadays, that it seems that it would be very convenient uh, to some people in the Western elites if Africa remained this underdeveloped, sparsely Um, populated by human beings kind of region and that we should somehow cut back on our development for some greater good. And that is absolutely unacceptable. Um, African have their own agenda. We have our own needs. We have the right to develop our productive resources in order to meet the just needs of the people of this huge continent and the idea that we cannot make use of 
well understood resources, energy sources, um, and technologies in order to do that is utterly ridiculous. And I think that's something we as Africans can actually learn from China. It's we're not saying you know Africa barely makes an impact on greenhouse gas emissions, you know, or on global warming. When you look at the stats, we barely register. You know, so I don't see why it should be controversial for us to use fossil fuels to bootstrap ourselves to a level of industry and development where we can embrace the green ecological civilization. But uh, perhaps that is a discussion for another day as well. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Crane. As always, you can find us on Dongsheng News. Org online. Uh, we are also on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube under at Dongsheng News. You can um, subscribe to this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts from. Please do review it and share it. It helps with the algorithm and it helps more people like you find this podcast. We really appreciate all your reviews, all your feedback, and your sharing. It really makes a difference. Thank you. And we look forward to having you with us next time on The Crane.